from my perspective, the work of art that we're doing is actually in the people themselves. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Besides being a photographer and a portraitist, Lancia Smith is the founder of Cultivating, a quarterly online magazine, and The Cultivating Project, a nurtured community of writers and artists committed to pursuing spiritual maturity and creative excellence. Lancia writes about brilliant people doing brilliantly good things related to faith, character formation, and the creative arts. I've been so impressed by her commitment to artists as whole people that I wanted to have her on the Habit Podcast to talk about it. Lancia Smith, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited about it. Well, good. Well, you are the editor-in-chief, the founder, the creative director for uh, Cultivating, which is an online quarterly periodical, and the Cultivating Project. Um, Can you just tell us what what those two things are and how they relate to one another? Um, Simplest um, answer and maybe the shortest, is simply to say that Cultivating itself is an online magazine. So it is a publication, and it's designed to be a publication. Mm -hmm. The Cultivating Project is actually the team of people who make up those folks that um, submit for the magazine. We're an invitation-only membership. So we we don't take one-off submissions, people don't send stuff to us and we say, well, this is great, we'd love to run this. This is um, a team and theme model of publishing. So the way that I would describe that, you know, would simply be the cultivating is the house, you know, the publication itself and the project happen to be the people who live in that house. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's the cultivating project is without a doubt the discipling initiative of cultivating. Okay. So the cultivating project is, is what it's a community, a relation. It's a, it's a set of relationships or. Yep. Okay. Yeah. It's a team of people who interact with each other and interact with me and who submit on a quarterly basis to cultivating. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is kind of a, it's a discipling relationship. It's a, it's a, how do you describe that relationship among the team? It's intended to be a discipling experience, but it's also intended to be a place where people can find fellowship with each other. But one of the things that's really critical about the cultivating project and cultivating itself is that I am far more interested in growing the people within that team than I am concerned about the magnificence of the publication. Because at least from my perspective, the the work of art that we're doing is actually in the people themselves. Mm -hmm. So it is a different way of looking at the process of publishing. Um, When I started out, I will be honest and say when I started out, I was a lot more (laughs) concerned about an uber beautiful um, publication because that's my background is graphics and photography. Um, But the longer I've been doing this, 
the the more I realize that the work of art is actually the people themselves who make up yeah. the cultivating project. When when we started, I asked a very scary question. Still is scary to ask that when we invite them, when I invite somebody to join the project, I'm asking them to join for three years. And mm-hmm. You know, people kind of roll their eyes about the idea of being invited to do anything for three years and think, how in the world am I supposed to commit to that? But most people have gone to school. <laughs> yeah. So this is not totally different. You know, we run this off the basis of seasons, uh-huh. very seasonally focused in themes. Um, in my perspective, having taught school for many years, um, is simply that you can't learn very much in one year. You can't learn very much in four increments. The only time you start really seeing maturity is over a two to three year period, three certainly. Um, So I ask people rather nervously, (laughs) (laughs) if you're invited to do this, consider stepping in for three years so you have time to grow. And stepping in doesn't just mean contributing pieces for three years y'all are meeting and what do you what does stepping in for three years mean it uh, can be a, a few things some people it really is only that they submit and their lives are complicated um mm-hmm. and they're stretched pretty thin this is a way for them to f- still be part of publishing um mm-hmm. can sometimes be seen as a salvage effort you know to keep some people from just losing heart altogether Hmm. if they've had hard blows and they're carrying heavy loads. Um, It's a way to keep them involved in the creative process with other Christians. Um, But there's, we have a small private Facebook group that Mm -hmm. we meet in as a team. Um, Not everybody joins because some people find Facebook too noisy uh, to want to be there. And it's, it's not comfortable. Um, and I do phone calls individually with really? as many as I can, um, mm-hmm. which is never enough, ever. No. I can never mm-hmm. make enough phone calls. <laughs> and um, we, So we do that. But we've also recently done something that to me feels really daring, and we've developed editorial teams. So um, we get people asking frequently, how do they – join and and i tell them the hard mean thing it's by invitation only and i stop it's invitation it. only and you're not invited is that how you put it that's pretty much yeah, yeah um, okay. i don't say you're not invited but i look a long time at people that i think would make a good cultural fit for cultivating mm-hmm. but i also look for the ones that are demonstrating characteristics that need to be there people need before i invite them they need to be writing for the sake of the writing or the photography itself Mm -hmm. they can't be doing it with the kind of wistful thing of i hope that you know i can be a writer Mm -hmm. because you and i both know the drill on this you either are going to show up for doing that work regardless of the rewards or not I need people who are really not trying to test this as much as I want to grow them. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that are selected for this are not outstanding um, in terms of large existing platforms. Few are. Mm -hmm. But I'm picking the ones that would otherwise have been maybe left behind. Mm -hmm. 
because usually they're just as fruitful. They needed somebody to pay attention. Yeah. Um, and that's really key to me. And so we've been really blessed with some remarkable um, team members. Amy Lee and Kimberly Conway Ireton were with me with Cultivating before we became a magazine, way back when I was oh, really? still, way back when I was still a blog, <laughs> um, you know, and still not, not thinking about this as a publication per se, um, you know, to involve other people. And as it's grown, I've been very, very honored that they stayed on with me. Yeah. Um, so you didn't quite get around to explaining what the editorial team, what, what this sort of scary idea was. What, what, the scary idea was that for a long time, I was the everything. I was everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. And when you grow as an organization, that usually leads to a stranglehold. Um, mm-hmm. You become the roadblock to anything getting done. And I would like to be able to invite more people to join the cultivating project and I can't unless I have other people within the team able to do discipling and able to pay attention and able to edit so because we're formed we talk about the about being the oaks of righteousness from Isaiah 61 and like an oak tree has branches we are forming branches within cultivating so that we can, in fact, have good teams of small 10, 10 people, maybe 12 on a team who write within a specific branch with specific topic area that they can develop and form close friendships and be nurtured uh-huh. in ways that I will never be able. I can nurture 24 I've done this when I was in church leadership where I've, you know, led leaders for a long time, but I'm just a person, just one person. And I have the same amount of time as everybody. So there just isn't enough of me to cover everybody that I would love to. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between editorial pursuits and discipleship pursuits? To me, they're both, um, they're two sides of one coin. Um, the editorial part is just the practical part of nurturing somebody in craft. Mm-hmm. You know, is the piece that they submitted, and particularly in cases where it's a written submission, um, because obviously some submissions are uh, photography, um, yeah. some submissions are actually illustrations, and those are fit into a different category. But for written submissions, the editorial is to help people. One, it's to help them think through whether or not they've said what they mean, right? As well as they can say it. Yeah. Um, we have copy. We have co-editors who basically make sure that it's structurally correct. Um, you know, but we're not. We're not. Most of us are not writing at an elevated status like you would for Rabbit Room. Rabbit Room. We we genuinely use Rabbit Room as like the standard of this is what superb writing looks like within the kind of framework that we're going for. So rabbit room becomes that high standard to reach for. I'm not expecting everybody in cultivating to be at that point, and they may never. They may be more humble in the things that they write and less developed, you know, and some of them have outgrown themselves. You know, they thought they couldn't write. 
Yeah. And at two or three years, they're doing things that just blow me away. Yeah. So we're excited about that. But the editorial process is this team, a managing editor and a co-editor, who spend time helping to develop people as they do their submissions for each, uh, you know, each issue that comes out. The other part of that, though, is making sure they have somebody praying for them, somebody to talk through life issues with, um, making sure that if things are a struggle that somebody knows to pay attention and, and be an encouragement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as I always say, you know, writing issues aren't just writing issues, right? Writing yeah. touches on every area of life. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love hearing you taking that idea seriously, right? That, that, that the rest of life, um, you know, it, when we think in terms of editorial, it, that's as if, we're, as if we're talking about, you know, it's easy to think of that in terms of sentence structure and grammar and, and organization. But, but uh, I love this, this broader vision that you're taking. Uh, I think this is, but by the way, what's your, do you have a model? Is, is anybody else, do you know other, other no. organizations that are doing anything like this? No. I, I mean, there may be, right. but I don't know them. I am the only, to date, I think I am the, the only, I am the only one I know that took the approach of doing team and theme as a model because it was explicitly from the beginning meant to be a place to grow Christians in the in creative crafts specifically. Um, and years ago, I was involved, and you know this. I've been involved for many, many years with the C.S. Lewis Foundation, and, mm-hmm. and probably sixteen years now. I've been working with okay. with them and love them. They're like my blood family, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in truth. So. Um, we were doing a workshop, a writer's workshop, uh, years ago at Camp Allen. And one of my favorite favorite people in the publishing world is Steve Lobby, who runs a literary agency. And he's, um, he's just a remarkable human being. And he and I were talking in the lobby between sessions one time, and it's this writer's conf- you know, we're doing a writer's branch at that point, and I know that he'd been speaking at Mount Hermon, which is a writer's conference. And um, one of the things that we see frequently is that good writer's conferences cover craft. You get all kinds of great training. Mm -hmm. And you know this. Great training. No, I don't. I've never been to a writer's conference. You're kidding. Nope. Never been to one. I thought you'd be like running them. Um, So... But we would see this training where they're learning about platform and how to make how to establish networking with publishers and you know how to do your um, proposal letter. That's why I've never been to a to a writers conference. So there's all those good things, and then there's fellowship, you know, and there's you know some important things there. But what they don't often cover is spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. And in reality, when you think about the writers that we still cling to um, and go back to, whether it's Flannery O'Connor or C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or George MacDonald or, you know, and you can go down the long canon list of important writers, all of them had something in common, and that's called character formation. Character formation is one of the things that I have seen sadly, horribly lacking 
not only in writers' conferences, but in general, and that has a lot to do with why cultivating was formed, um, because we're not talking about the three C's. This is the thing. The conversation with Steve Lobby was, I said, we need writers' conferences that are teaching not just craft and not just scripture verses, you know, to be anchored in, but we really need to be talking about the integration of craft, character, and community. Because if you take creative people away from all three of those, you have people who are stunted or who never completely form. So you have brilliant musicians who may never have been encouraged to be in permanent relationships. And so they're exploited and they end up killing themselves or having ruinous lives. I have been exposed to a lot of that. Yeah. You know, as a recovering addict myself, I look at the things about what it takes to form a whole life. Yeah. And it isn't, Malcolm Geith has had a huge influence in terms of the way that I see what a whole human creative is in Christ because he's a good example of looking at somebody who's really integrated. Um, but it's, I want to see us growing more Jonathan Rogers and more Malcolm Geitz and more Andrew Peterson. I just named all men, but I like men. And so I don't expect us to all be men. Hoping that we grow some women like that too. But, you know, I, that's just one of those driving factors is that, when you leave the part out about spiritual formation and teaching um, relational values, you are not going to have a whole writer or painter. And we all know the story of people who had enormous talents right. in one area, and they were like truncated formation in other areas. Yeah. And, and, and there are some artists who manage to produce while being that truncated, but I also wonder, you know, so you've got, you know, Hemingway, who's famously, you know, self-indulgent, but could also produce. But I I just wonder how many, how many people, how much talent just doesn't get developed because as you said, you know, you're talking about character, you're talking about uh, community. What, what, what is lost in terms of creativity so forget about, I know there are people there. I know there's Picasso. I know there's, you know, there's Hemingway, um, people who are, you know, relationally unhealthy and, and still manage to produce. But, but what about the people who just never produce because they don't have this whole, this wholeness that you're talking about? You know, I, that's, I, I love what you're, I just love what you're talking about here. Um, because somehow we think of that self, that self-absorbed, that self-absorption as a prerequisite for great art or something. And, and I, I think people like th- these self-absorbed artists are the exception rather than the rule. They are. I mean, I, that's one of the things I think that um, Anselm Society in Colorado Springs has done a really brilliant job of um, articulating about the importance of what it means to not be a self-absorbed artist. Um, because even even Christians who have grown up with grow up hearing the stereotype that if you're artistic, you're naturally moody and you're entitled to be moody and sulking in the corner or that you're more sensitive. 
than everybody else. And therefore, you can't be expected, you know, to have adult responsible responses to things. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot. I saw it a lot in recovery. I mean, I I saw it a lot um, in church groups. The idea of accountability of growing up and becoming mature is not a popular, widely discussed concept. And it's an expectation where I think I would say most modern churches that I have known, I'll just go on record and say that they've fallen short of creating communities that expected people to grow up. Mm-hmm. So we have this very unbalanced reality of people who want to have something, but they don't want to go through the growth process of maturing. Yeah. But scripture is full of the call for people to become spiritually mature, and they don't shy away from that language. Yeah. They're, they're, you become an elder because you become wise and trustworthy and your integrity has developed roots and you see the fruit of that growth. And the only way that we do that is if we're in a community with people to see them um, become old. Yeah. To see people become um, mature is to, to watch what that looks like. And you can only do that through the very expensive process of spending time with people. That's why I can nurture about 24 people in some fashion or another, but I can't really do more than that. I'm just one person. But if we expect, I expect my teams to grow up to eventually be reproducing. Yeah. That's you know, we have children, we expect them to grow up someday and be self-sustaining and have, get married and have babies yeah. and go on raising them. Well, yeah. same for the body of Christ. Yeah. You know, I, so when you're talking about mature, you know, maturing and, and creative people maturing and, and creative people helping each other mature, um, I, I'm thinking about something and you, you just talked about the idea of being sensitive and, and if somehow being sensitive, you know, and artistic, you know, that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of being adults. <laughs> um, it made me think about something that that I that Helena Sorensen has She's said. Great. Speaking of you're you're looking for women examples of of uh, you know mature uh, artistic people. There's one, uh, and and so you know Helena talks about and and I know I'm, I'm this is going to come up again in next week's episode. By the way, in my uh, retrospective my 100th episode retrospective next week Um, and so helena is going to be on there uh talking about i think she's i think this tidbit is going to make it on to to that episode um the idea that in in one sense yes we have to be thick-skinned to be productive creative people but on the other hand we do have to be sensitive and thin-skinned to be responsive and attentive to the world around us. So then how do you be both thin skinned and sensitive and also responsible? And I, I think one a really big part of that is community, which is of course you're, you're building there, right? I mean, if, if I, uh, if I am going to be sensitive, whatever that word means, man, that, that, that word has more negative connotations and positive connotations probably. But, but if I am going to be sensitive, 
it is hard to be, you know, mature and responsible. Um, and yeah, I think you have to turn to your community to help you do both. No, I think that's true. No. Jesus, Jesus was to me, Jesus is the example because he was sensitive and he was mature. He was both. Yeah. And I look at him over and over and the older I get, the more I look at him and think, how did you do that? Um, like, and I'm, you know, looking like a kid looking at an older brother. Um, I, I want to know how does he, how, did, how is he brave enough to say the hard things to people that he did mm -hmm. and yet be the embodiment of love itself? That's a mystery to me. I mean, um, I always find that amazing. How did he know? How did he know what the Father's will was and be surrounded by people that he loved and that he created and then know when he needed to go away and be by himself? When yeah. he was just peopled out. Yeah. Um, I, I get that because I'm in, you know, kind of a similar, you know, scenario where I'm a lot of my work, both my day job and what I do with cultivating and other organizations involved in faith and the arts requires a lot of intensive attention to people. And, uh, you know, I'm one person and I'm shy and I'm very reserved, which most people assume to be otherwise, but that's actually the case. And it takes a lot of energy to be focused as intensely as I am on people. Jesus would have been the same, you yeah. know. Um, how, did he, how did he balance that? And yet somehow he does manage to be spiritually sensitive, emotionally sensitive, and yet in his character, strong. And it, it, to me, it does, in fact, always go back, maybe not to being thick-skinned, but deep-rooted. Hmm, that's good. Because when you're deep-rooted, you can take the th hits. You can take the things that happen and bend because your nourishment is coming from deep mm -hmm. where the fluctuation isn't, you know, the upheaval is always above the surface, you know, unless it's an yeah. earthquake and that metaphor falls apart. But, you know, you know, yeah. I just, I think that the deep rooted part is really critical. And I think that does in fact only happen in community because it happens in places where we feel safe. I, I see safety as one of those primary parts of like the weight, the weight bearing beams in a house yeah. where they say you can take out this thing and you can take out that thing, but you can't take out a load bearing beam. Yeah, right. Safety in a community is one of the load bearing beams. Mm. If you take, if you take safety and people understanding what it means to be caretakers of one another out it isn't safe then you go to facebook forum and it's a mess yeah um, rabbit room i think does a really really beautiful job of establishing the framework of expectation of safety i have worked hard to create that kind of culture in cultivating mm -hmm. and a lot of it i admit i learned through 12-step programs mm. um as i was in them for yeah. years, and I led them for years. Uh -huh. um, 
So that part allows people, you know, a place to be loved. And if they do something a little bit, you know, out of sync or off kilter, there's enough love to counterbalance it. We've, we've gone through that in cultivating where mm-hmm. people come in with expectations and don't know, you know, what they're going to get or experience and get mad or frustrated or worked into a froth about something. Sometimes they say things that probably they don't, they, they really ought not to, but mm-hmm. um, there's lots of ways to help grow people in that context and, I mean, that, that is part of what I do for a living, too. So uh-huh. it helps that I bring in, you know, work-related yeah. training, you know, as it were, yeah. you know, to bear fruit in a different part of the field. Yeah. You know, so um, most of the – as you're forming community, most of what you're talking about is online, correct? I mean, y'all aren't meeting together in a room. No. No. I mean, there's a handful of us that happen to live within an 80-mile radius of each other, but mm-hmm. most of us are um, not only across the country, but across the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I noticed that as I was, as I was looking at the, the people on the team, as I was looking at the, the About Us section. Um, so what have you learned about community online? Any tidbits that – I mean, I, I run an online community. I don't, I don't know that I'm especially good at it, and so what, what – Tell me about that. Um, I, you know, I, it, one of the things that I love about Anselm Society is that they were formed on the basis of geographic location and in-person meeting. Mm-hmm. And it's just freaking magic to watch what they do. I mean, they're just superb at what they do. Uh-huh. Rabbit Room. You're on the board or something at, at the Anselm Society? I, I have been, yes, oh, you have. Okay. a lot of years. I just took um, a step out of that, Okay. not, not happily, but um, I can't do everything. And I, my attention needs to be right now on cultivating. Uh-huh. Um, and so I've taken a step out of um, primary leadership with mm-hmm. the C.S. Lewis Foundation and from the Anselm okay. Society, even though I love and cherish both of those organizations um, because I need to grow the one that I have to grow. Right. I'm, yeah. Cultivating's got my name on it, so I have to like show up for that one. Yeah. Right. Also, Sorry, has, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to send you off track. But, but oh. I will say that the thing, Anselm does in-person community brilliantly because they've really focused on what it means to be geographically located. The C.S. Lewis Foundation, you know, is a model that I look at, and their community is very globally thrown and it's based on big events but they don't do like little forums and so they're launching into a new direction of webinars and engagement that way that gets more frequent connection cultivating is sort of um you know a little bit like rabbit room where it started as we started as you know an online publication but it's grown into something much more than that um but what makes a difference is that we do Zoom calls and we do this little Facebook group and I do phone calls. And I take the phone work pretty seriously mm-hmm. because even though I've got people in England and Germany and Thailand, um, we've got 
very engaged readers who are in Australia and in Japan at this point. And everybody, you know, we're, the team itself is across the country. The phone is, the voice is still a voice. Yeah. Somebody paying attention to you is still somebody paying attention, even if you can't see their face. And um, people know when they're loved, but I'll tell you that I do something. I'm, I'm not particularly proud of this um, because it's so crazy. Nobody should be doing this. But I actually sent care packages to my whole team. So, yes, I do that. Um, weird woman that I am. <laughs> And so everybody knows at some point that they're going to get a cultivating box. Um, I think that there's different ways to say I love you and that you're more than just a person to provide a submission to fill a space on a website. Hmm. Um, I've try, I try as hard as I can for everybody in cultivating to know that. And I don't, I don't do a perfect job. I mean, I, that's, you know, the stories about C.S. Lewis, and like it's the impossible standard to live up to how he answered every letter. Yeah. And I'm just going, I'm a failure. <laughs> my, for years in my bio, I just said, and I dream of reaching zero in my inbox, but I have five email addresses and no matter how hard I've tried, right. I have never managed to get below 30 or 40 in every one of those. And they're real people and they're people yeah. I care about. I just cannot, I cannot answer everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I wish with all my heart, you know, that I could do, yeah, I could spend all the time with each person and say how amazing they are because they are. Yeah. And when you asked, when you when you sent me the questions, and when I walk into a room, people know that I came in, but that they do. I mean, and I know that. I mean, I, so there's a certain amount of presence when I walk into the room, but I'm not expecting people to look at me. I'm amazed by the people I see. Yeah. I really am. So. Yeah. Well, you're, let, let me just, you know, since you made an oblique reference, let me just, just say, you know, what I had said in my note to you was, um, you know, I, as I've been looking at your work, I think about what Brown Bannister um, said in an earlier episode of The Habit. And he says, you know, some people are a, you know, they, they walk in a room and say, here I am. And some people walk, walk in a room and say, there you are. And, and you're, it seems obvious that you're a there you are kind of person. Um and I, I like the way you're framing this. It's not, it's, that's not strictly, I'm not, I'm not commenting on your humility one way or another. That's not so much a matter of humility as a matter of being amazed by what's in front of you. It's a matter of paying attention, right? Because the people that we see really are pretty remarkable. They are. And, and when, when you look at people and you don't think they're remarkable, it's probably because you're not paying attention. That is exactly correct. Yeah, and you're missing something. Because if you're looking you will be amazed. That's, yeah. It's that simple. I learned that from years of portrait photography. Mm. And so when I look at people, what people see when they see a portrait that I've done is the person I see that I'm in love with. Huh. Because I don't shoot portraits unless I am in love with the person and that face and mm. the world that I see in that face. And I'm mesmerized by 
the extraordinary things that I see in those eyes and, you know, those cheekbones and that little wisp of hair that's going someplace that I'm going to have to Photoshop out, you know, because <laughs> you'll be embarrassed that it was there or the little flakes of, you know, hair, you know, debris on somebody's jacket. I mean, I'm, I am looking at all of that, but I'm also looking, you know, for, um, you know, the, the moment when a shy person pulls the veil away and really looks at me. I mean, I did portraits of Walter Hooper for 12 years. So Walter is notorious for doing a single face in every image that he had photographed publicly. And he, it was the Walter mask, I think, is the mm. nomenclature that people used for the fact he looks exactly the same in every picture he shot for like 40 years. He never cracked a smile unless he was caught really off guard. But there was no, like, lean forward, turn your shoulder just right and you know, <laughs> smile. There's, no, there's none of that. It was just, yeah. and it was so irritating. And so I did pictures of Walter for ages, and I got, got some good ones over the years because we had, you know, had tea and cookies at his tea and biscuits. <laughs> his flat in Oxford and got some really beautiful ones because he's talking about his kitty um, that he loved. And I've gotten pictures of him before at the kilns, you know, when he was there doing talks and, mm -hmm. you know, different things. We'd known each other a long time and written to each other for a long time. And finally, you know, like three years ago, um, he did, he came to um, a function for the foundation um, in Oxford and right afterwards I actually did a set of portrait like formal portraits like portrait portraits and at first you know he's like glancing at me a little bit of this and a little bit of that but it was lots of people were around he didn't have a chance to put on the Walter mask because <laughs> he's everybody was so excited to, to be with him and there's a moment where he turned and he looked at me You know, I prayed for years, actually, to get a real picture of Walter. Because I really loved Walter. And it wasn't like I admired him from a distance. I really loved him. And, um, you know, there's just a moment, you know, where he looked at me, and I'm looking at him in the camera, and it's really my Walter looking at me. Mm. And I could... There's his face, and he, and you can tell the moment when it happens when somebody lets you see them. It's just such a holy moment when somebody will let you see who they are afraid for you to see because they have all the guards up, and we're all like that. Yeah. All of us are that way. You know, um, it's hard to trust other people to see us. You know, to see the good, because most of us only see what's broken. You know, I, I, I get that. I am really fortunate that I have gifted daughters behind a camera. And I have a lot of wonderful pictures of me. And so I'm one of those women that's really fortunate that I can say I have pictures of me that I really love. Mm -hmm. um, but not everybody is. And it just takes so much courage and so much trust to let somebody see you. And on that moment with Walter was, 
you know, like one of those moments where I felt like the Lord said, it's okay, and here's this moment. Be trustworthy, and I will show you something. And that picture, to me, was more of a kiss from the Lord um, in some ways even than from Walter. Um, well, I don't know why I went off story. that. I, I, I love that. That's an emotional story for me, and I don't, I don't talk about it too much. Don't think Walter's death is still hard for me to process. He just died a year or so ago, right? A few months, actually. He died mm-hmm. December seventh. Maybe we should. Maybe you should explain who Walter Hooper is. Not, not, not sure all our listeners will know well, that. Walter name. Hooper um, was C.S. Lewis's private secretary, and then he became the executor of Lewis's literary estate, and the role. You know that Walter had. I mean, he's he's one of the most quiet, soft-spoken Southern gentlemen who lived in Oxford. You know, for you know multiple years. I mean, he moved there in '64. Um, you know, a month or two after Lewis died, um, and the C.S. Lewis that people know today. The only reason we know that name really is because Walter would never let Lewis's works go out of publication. He was the utter champion of making sure that those books remained in circulation and didn't get lost in, you know, the wave of other publications. Magnificent, beautiful man and so quiet and and gentle. Did he uh, take on a British accent uh, in his many years? He always spoke like a Southerner? Nope, he talked just like you. Okay. He's got, he had that beautiful, beautiful, he was from North Carolina. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, soft-spoken Southern lilt. Yeah. All right, got to wrap this thing up. Um, got to ask you the obligatory last question. Who are the writers who make you want to write or the artists who make you want to do art, Lancia? Oh, I would have to say, and I know that's going to sound um, – well, I'm just going to say, I want to write partly because I am inspired by you, and I am a devoted reader and mesmerized by what you write. Um, but I will also say, people who still make me want to write are Michael Ward, mm-hmm. Diana Glyer, Malcolm Gite, Walter Hooper. And in truth, I also am extremely inspired by the writers for The Cultivating Project. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just honored to get to keep company with them. And they make me able to feel braver about writing when I would be afraid to do so because my natural language is image. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and I, I want to grow up to shoot more like Julie Jablonski and Tom Litsky from Cultivating and my daughter, Regina. Um, yeah, my daughter Pachana has an amazing eye. Um, they're they're phenomenal photographers. And so if if you think of writing with light, which mm-hmm. is what photography is as a form of writing, yeah. they're my inspirations in that regard as well. I uh, I hear you when you say, you know, the the writers you're actually in community with. That too really makes me, I mean, as much as I, you know, there are certainly writers who inspire me that I don't know, but it's, it's the writers that I yes. know that. It is the writers that I know that make me want to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, your writing reminds me a lot of Walter Hooper's, by the way. Huh. There's a finesse. And so um, when I read you, 
it's like reading Walter or reading Michael Ward when you see what it means to be a man of letters. Hmm. Okay. I thought you were going to say, cause we both write in a Southern accent. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, Lanzia Smith, thank you so much for being on the habit podcast. It's, it's really been fun to, to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a privilege. I um, so appreciate the opportunity. Good. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.